The Gospel reading is from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turned to the crowd following him. He said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Thanks be to God for his word. Do you resume your seats? So a long time ago, in a far-flung corner of the Roman Empire, there was a centurion who commanded soldiers. There was a wealthy government official and a Greek doctor turned historian who connected them by writing about the time Jesus healed the centurion's servant. When we examine Matthew's account of the same incident, we may be puzzled to see him describe the centurion coming to Jesus in person. However, rather than a contradiction between Gospels, this difference results from a typical first century literary device. The New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg explains that contemporary conventions for writing history and biography usually require standards of precision that people had not even invented, much less begun to follow in the ancient world. It was considered not only appropriate, but also necessary to abridge or abbreviate long accounts and to be highly selective as to what one narrated. So Matthew removes minor characters to abbreviate his account. After all, scrolls and ink and such are not cheap. Nevertheless, Matthew conforms to the ancient popular way of communicating in which general accuracy is actually preferable to precision. And the text should be evaluated and appreciated in that way. As the theologian Leon Morris comments, Matthew was concerned primarily with the centurion's faith and nationality. To him, the messengers, the go-betweens, were irrelevant, even a distraction. But Luke 
was interested in the man's character and specifically in his humility. To him, the messengers were a vital part of the story. So both Matthew and Luke bear accurate witness to the same event. To bear witness is to fulfill your duty to accurately tell what you know about something significant. While only some witnesses have first-hand knowledge of the thing about which they bear witness, all witnesses have knowledge that they share with others. Put another way, some events have such an intrinsic significance to them that to have knowledge of those events is to find oneself under an obligation to bear witness. The novel Night by Holocaust survivor survivor Elie Wiesel contains the phrase, for the dead and the living, we must bear witness. Or Lawrence Binion's 1914 poem, For the Fallen, contains the promise that at the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Now, not everyone who repeats that solemn phrase in Memorial Day services can remember them as eyewitnesses. But even schoolchildren can remember them in the two-minute silence by reflecting on knowledge gained in history lessons. And our reading today is all about bearing witness. Indeed, Luke opens his gospel by recording that since he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning, he has decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the steadfastness of the things that you've been taught. Theophilus was a Roman official who'd heard about Jesus and wanted to know more. In response, Luke writes his biography of Jesus and indeed the book of Acts. According to the late atheist Christopher Hitchens, religion just is, quote, a surrender of reason in favour of faith. Well, Luke's response to Theophilus demonstrates that far from requiring some surrender of reason, Christian faith can be a reason-based commitment. Luke gives Theophilus evidence as he says, handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. By bearing witness to Jesus, Luke encourages Theophilus to bear witness to Jesus. Now, knowing this background, we can see how Luke accurately relates the incident in our reading with Theophilus specifically in mind. Luke sees that here is another Roman official, the centurion, who hasn't seen Jesus with his own eyes, but who has heard enough about Jesus to put at least some confidence in him. Our centurion may have been what was called a God-fearer, that is, one who worshipped the God of Israel but declined to become a proselyte to Judaism. Having requested Jesus' help, 
Why does our centurion send friends to keep Jesus from entering his home? Well, for a Jew to enter a Gentile's home would defile him, ceremonially speaking. The centurion would have known this and didn't want to subject Jesus to this ritual impurity. Moreover, as Morris again observes, the centurion does not say, uh, I am a man with authority, as might have been expected, but I am a man set under authority. The humility of the man comes out in his reference to his place in a graded hierarchy, which he might well have spoken of his superiority to those beneath him. But his words may imply that Jesus, like himself, drew his authority from a higher power, a higher source. And by that authority, Jesus heals the beloved servant. And the miracle itself bears witness to Jesus. Luke bears witness to the miracle so that Theophilus will be encouraged to bear witness to Jesus, despite his not seeing Jesus in person, just like the centurion. Now, unfortunately, there isn't enough information about the centurion for us to determine exactly what he made of Jesus. He'd clearly received sufficient witness about Jesus to form the judgment that here was a man who wielded the power of Israel's God. A man who could heal his servant with an authoritative word, sight unseen. Did he consider Jesus the Messiah? Did he come to believe that he was the divine son of God? We don't know. We can be more confident about the impact of Luke's witness upon Theophilus, however. A few verses on in Luke 7, we find John the Baptist languishing in Herod's jail, suffering doubts about Jesus and sending messengers to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replies, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Well, this response is echoing the prophecies of Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah 35, Uh, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. In other words, Jesus gave John an argument that the scriptures and his miracles bore joint witness to his status. He was arguing, one, if someone does certain kinds of actions, they are the Messiah. Two, I do exactly those kind of actions. Three, therefore, I am the Messiah. Well, John had proclaimed Jesus Messiah before he'd been put in prison. And in Luke 7, 27, Jesus identifies John as the messenger prophesied by Malachi. In Malachi 3, 1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. 
Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And likewise, in Luke 3, 4-6, before our reading, this applies the prophecy of Isaiah 43 to John. Uh, 40 verse 3 to John. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Luke clearly wants Theophilus to see the entailment of Jesus' argument in response to John. One, Jesus is the Messiah. Two, the Messiah is God. Three, therefore Jesus is God. Now to know that Jesus is God is to know something so significant that one finds oneself with a responsibility to bear witness. It's genuinely believed that Theophilus is the person who paid for the publication of Luke's Gospel and its sequel, the Book of Acts. And in doing so, Theophilus was bearing witness to the deity of Jesus in a very public way, and a very expensive way as well. To follow in the footsteps of a first century centurion, doctor, and government official, we too have the privilege of bearing witness to Jesus. Clearly, one of the best ways to do this is to help those with some interest in Jesus to read the first century witness about him. And I'm sure we can think of all sorts of creative ways in which we might do that. But for now, let us pray that may the Spirit of Christ give us opportunities to bear witness to him. Amen.